Let's turn in our Bibles for the last time, Haggai chapter 2, as we conclude our series tonight in this little book of prophecy towards the end of the Old Testament, Haggai. And we're in the final chapter, the last couple of verses of chapter number 2, verse number 20. You know, the, uh, the task of leadership is not an easy task. To be responsible for those who are looking to that leadership for guidance and for direction, for enthusiasm. Task is not an easy one. It could be tempting to kind of look and, well, I'd really like that position. I'd like that authority. Perhaps there's a little extra compensation uh, in the, the salary package that goes along with it, some benefits, but not realizing that with authority comes heavy responsibility. Whether you have a leadership position at your job that comes with increased responsibility, or you have a position of leadership in your home as a father, as a mother, comes with it some very heavy responsibility. Of course, a leadership position in a church comes with heavy responsibility. And even being a role model and, and leading by example also has a heavy responsibility to it. In fact, no matter who you are, just about everyone in this room tonight has some sort of realm of authority. You have leadership in, in some regard or another. People are, are looking to you for, for guidance, for leadership, for an example. And with that authority comes that heavy responsibility. In Hebrews 13, 17, those with authority are described as they that must give account for those that they are leading. And that's a, that's a heavy burden. That's a heavy responsibility to give account for how you guided, how you shepherded, how you led. That's the kind of re, uh, responsibility that comes with leadership and with that weight of responsibility also comes an awful lot of potential discouragements. Whether those discouragements are something that we deal with in a open sort of public sense where people can see it, or those discouragements are behind closed doors when no one's really watching, when no one's listening. There's many discouragements. Through this series, we've seen God's messages through the prophet, through his spokesperson, Haggai. Tonight, we'll look at the final message for a very specific individual with a very heavy load of responsibility on his shoulders. Look there in verse 20, Haggai 2, and verse 20. It says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying... Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, Will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, 
saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Father, would you guide and direct us tonight as we look into your holy and precious word. I pray as we look at this special message for a special individual, I pray that you would teach us and encourage us tonight. Lord, there are many discouragements if we are to pick up the mantle of leadership and and leading people in the right path. There are many discouragements. I pray that you help us to get a vision of your message for your leader in this passage that we might go forth from this place encouraged to fulfill our responsibility and to fulfill the place that you have given for each of us to serve you. I ask for the filling of your spirit, the guidance of the thoughts tonight, that they might be exactly as you would have them to be, and that we would be edified and encouraged this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the book of Haggai, and all throughout this book, we have seen specific leaders with the responsibility of guiding God's people to fulfill the task that he gave them to do. And that task was to rebuild a house of worship for him in the city of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed, after God had brought judgment through the nation of Babylon. Now that that judgment has passed, the, the 70 years has been fulfilled, it's time to rebuild God's house. It's time to restart that worship of God in the place that God has chosen, the city of Jerusalem. That was the task. And, and God chose leaders to guide that task. Uh, there were two leaders in particular that we've seen, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. Incidentally, there was also two prophets that God sent to help in this rebuilding effort. Of course, we've been focusing on Haggai and studying uh, his book. But of course, the next very next book in your Bible, the book of Zechariah, was written by the prophet Zechariah. And he was... Uh, uh, working together with Haggai to fulfill the same task. So throughout this book, we've seen the prophet communicating four specific messages. We've looked at all four. That first message, consider your ways, build my house. The second message, I see that obedience that, that you're putting forth on my behalf. I see that I'm with you in that obedience. The third A message was, don't be discouraged, be strong and work. And the fourth message was in that obedience, don't forget the importance of the heart and holiness within. And if you obey me from this day, I will bless you. And then we get to verse number 20, and you notice how it began. It says, and again, again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai. Along with that fourth fourth message, there's kind of an addendum, an extra piece that's been added to the back end. Uh, a, A very special message for the leader. In this task of rebuilding the temple, and that is this person's rubble, and he seems to have just, you know, a a preeminent role over the other leaders that he was working with. God singles him out, and he said, you're you're the one, I've chosen you, I've got a special task for you, and I want to encourage you, and my message to you is very simple. As the leader, Zerubbabel, consider my promises. Consider my promises. And then he begins to to delve into those promises. But first, I want you to see in verse 20 and 21, specifically, the the message for the leader. The message for the leader, the man Zerubbabel, what was God's message for him? You'll you'll notice that 
In uh, verse number 20, it tells us that that message came in the 4 and 20th day. That's, that matches the same date of the previous message we looked at last week. So it's the same time, and it's almost as if God gave the message to his people, encouraging them from this day, I'm going to bless you. You put your, give your heart to me. You give yourself to, to inward holiness. I'm going to bless you from this day. And then he says, now for you. Kind of singles him out. This message is for you. And before we kind of delve into what that special message is, let's take a moment and consider who, who exactly is this man, Zerubbabel? Who is he? You'll note some things about him. First of all, we see his delineation or his name. Zerubbabel was born in captivity. He was born in Babylon. His name means a descendant of Babel. An ever-present reminder of the fact that his nation was enduring the judgment of God. You were born in captivity. You were born not in the land of your fathers, not in the land of your family, but you were born in the nation of Babylon. And the reason for that was God's judgment, that the nation was continuing to endure. I mean, we're only seeing the, 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 the first glimmers of light, of hope, that that judgment was finally coming to an end. His delineation, a descendant of, of Babel. We also see something about his descent. Part of the reason for the position that he has is because he was from a fairly prominent family. You notice in verse 23 mentions his father's name, that name Shealtiel. And that's an interesting name because... Uh, we find in other passages, we won't take the time to go there tonight, but in other passages that Shealtiel is actually the brother of a man named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was the last, the final king before the final destruction of, of the nation of Israel. Prior to captivity, Zedekiah was that last king. And this is Zerubbabel's uncle, his father's brother. Along with that, um, Zerubbabel had a grandfather a man by the name of Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin was, is noteworthy because uh, he was a very evil king. He only ruled for three months and ten days. He was so evil and God pronounced judgment upon him. Um, but this meant that Zerubbabel was a descendant in the royal line of King David. And as a result would have been a, a recipient of the, the covenant, the promise that God made with King David way back uh, when David ruled on the throne of Israel. And so that was the positive part of it, but there was a catch to that. As I just mentioned, his grandfather was a wicked and evil king. So much so that if you just hold your place here, go back to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. There was a special message for his grandfather from the prophet Jeremiah. Look at chapter 22. I want you to see this. Jeremiah 22 and look there in verse 24, Jeremiah 22, verse number 24. You'll notice as we begin reading that there's a specific man that's, that's uh, pointed out. The name that's used is Coniah. Coniah and Jehoiachim are the same, Jehoiachim are the same individual. Coniah is just another name given to him. But you notice Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah's message to Zerubbabel's grandfather. Verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, it's Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet upon my right hand, yet I would pluck thee thence. 
And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out and thy mother that bare thee into another country where you were not born, and there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desired to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Kaniah, despised, broken isle? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? God, why, for, why is this judgment taking place? Verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, ruling any more in Judah. God said to his grandfather, there will be no more kings from your family, from your line. Because of your evil, because of your wickedness, there is what is known in, by Bible students as the, the curse of Jeconiah or the, the curse of Kaniah. This is the family curse of Zerubbabel. So not only were the glory days of David and Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Not only were the glory days of those kings long gone, who were Zerubbabel's descendants, or, or he, was, uh, the, he was their descendants. They were his lineage. Not only were those glory days gone, but now what's left of his family, including himself, is under a curse from God himself. It's a little bit about his descent. However, that doesn't, that doesn't stop his determination. He's determined to, to do something. We've seen that in our text. We can read about that in the book of, of Ezra. In the early days of returning to Jerusalem, he set forward the work of the house of God. We read about that in Ezra chapter number 3. And now after the setbacks, the difficulties of the last 16 years, his spirit is stirred up by the prophet Haggai and he rose up, Ezra chapter 5 tells us about that, rose up to complete the job, to complete the task. And he's got a determination. Despite the, 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 the difficulties and the baggage of, of his past and his family, he's got a determination to do something for God. But that determination comes with an awful lot of difficulty. Because he's got to lead a people. 40,000 people that have returned from captivity to Jerusalem. And let's just say that these people are not exactly the cream of the crop. Okay, There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of difficulty. These people are a defeated people. Yeah, they had returned to the land, but the reality is that the nation was nowhere near what it once was. In fact, I, this popped in my mind. I think I included the verse here from Nehemiah. Nehemiah would write about 70 years after this point, And notice how things were described when Nehemiah had a family member go back to the land. And he asked, how are things going back in Jerusalem? He described it this way. The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. I mean, if this is the way it was 70 years after this, like, think about how bad it is even now. They're in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And of course, even at this time, that wall is broken down. It was broken down when the, the Babylonians destroyed the city. 
So the walls broken down, the gates are burned with fire. This is what they're living amongst. This is the way things are in, in the nation. This is a defeated people. He's also trying to lead a distracted people. Because for the last 16 years, they had neglected the task. That's why Haggai is writing in the first place. They had stopped doing what God wanted them to do. They had quit building the temple. And they had gotten busy with their own lives and and building their own homes. and, And their priorities got all out of whack. And they got distracted. And because of this failure for the past 16 years, and, and as we looked at this, it was described for us in Haggai that God had, was punishing them. He was judging them. He was frustrating them um, and, and uh, depleting their harvest and, and frustrating their efforts. They were a distracted people. And they were also a discouraged people. You remember the message from a couple of weeks ago. Even as they got started building once again, they saw what they were able to accomplish. And some were discouraged. They remembered what the temple was of Solomon and what they were able to do was nothing near what that was. They were discouraged people as well. This is quite a difficulty to lead this group of people. But that's the task that God has given to Zerubbabel, which leads now to what has to be some of the doubts in his heart in his, in his mind. I'm sure some of those doubts dealt with the corporate nation as a whole. Doubts like, could they really overcome all of the discouragements and actually complete the task? Could they actually get it done? They had started and stopped. You know, could, could they now finish the job? And even if they could, we get the temple done, it's finished, yay, hurrah, then what? There's still a very vulnerable people living in a city with no walls, no, no protection. They're, 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 they're sitting ducks. I mean, what, what comes next? What comes after this? Would they ever be a nation again? Would they ever be a kingdom again? I mean, at this point, they're, they're just a little uh, a governorship, a little regency at the mercy of the foreign power, the, the, uh, the Persian Empire, which ruled the world at that time. They weren't a kingdom like they, weren't, like they once uh, were. They're not like David and Solomon, and they probably weren't going to be for a very long time. And to this little undertaking, this little task of building this, this temple, which wasn't near what it used to be, did this little task really accomplish anything? Or did it really mean anything? I mean, these are the doubts that, he, that, that have to be going through his mind. Some corporate doubts, but then also some personal doubts. Because we're, we're not told that it was Zerubbabel who during those 16 years was upbraiding the people and saying, we're not doing right. We've got we to gotta get this job done. We've got to get this task done. And I don't want to put too much on at Zerubbabel, or lay too much at his feet. But the people failed in rebuilding and as their leader, he failed in leading them to rebuild. So he, had, he already has a failure on, on his docket at this point. And it seems as though there were still some of those lingering doubts in his heart. Personal doubts. Like, am I able to do this? Am I going to fail again? And if you've ever been in a position of leadership, you know what those thoughts are like. Just personal thoughts. Can I do this? 
Am I up to the task? These are the doubts. This is what's going on in the heart of this leader, this man, Zerubbabel. And God speaks to him. God has a message for him. He's addressed all of the people. And, and in some of those messages, uh, the previous messages, he's included Zerubbabel and Joshua in those, in those encouragements and in, uh, in those, that, that direction to rebuild God's house. He's, he's been included in that. But now, now this is squarely, this message is for you. I've got something that I want to give to you. And all of that that God focuses on as he speaks to Zerubbabel, all of that revolves around a promise. A promise. And that's not right. I forgot to change that heading. So don't don't hold that against me. A promise from the Lord. All right. So for whatever reason, that didn't change. I need to check myself. Yeah, it's a promise from the Lord. Just forgot to change that. So forgive me for that. Um, But the promise involves two different aspects. First of all, God says, this is what I'm going to do. You'll notice in verse 21, I will shake the heavens and the earth and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the of the kingdoms of the heathen and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down every one by the sword of his brother. You notice I will, I will, I will. In fact, I think it's five or six times between those two verses, verse um, 21, 22, and actually 23 as well. God says, I will. And I think what God is trying to communicate to Zerubbabel is this. The return of my people to the land is only the beginning. I'm not done. Okay, the, the, the temple rebuilding of, of, of God's house and the worship to God, that's not the end of God's plans. I've got further plans. I'm not done with you. Amen. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's already said this once before back in chapter number two, and there's a connection here with what God's trying to say. But God says, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one to shake the heavens and the earth. This little group of 40,000 people and this little city of Jerusalem, they, were, they didn't have the power or capability of shaking heavens, the heavens and the earth. They, they, they could barely even defend themselves. But God says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm going to do that. Reminds us an awful lot of of how God describes what he's going to do. You remember that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted, the the dream of the great image, which is the, the kingdoms of man. And then God's promise to take that rock, that stone that's been hewed and to throw it at that that image and destroy it all. And the interpretation in Daniel 2 and verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God says, this is what I am going to do, and I haven't forgotten my promise. I haven't forgotten what I said before. I'm still doing and fulfilling that which I said I was going to do. I'm not done with you as a people. God says, I'm going to destroy, not only overthrow the throne of kingdoms, but I'm going to destroy the strength of those kingdoms. He mentions specifically the chariots, which were viewed as a mark of strength for an army. Power, might, and also monetary uh, ability to 
to, to purchase those things, God says, I'm going to overthrow all of that. I'll overthrow the chariots and I'll do it by the end of verse 22. I'll do it by the sword, every one of his brother. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll cause them to take themselves out. That's how I'm going to do it. God has a little bit of a sense of humor. All right. I'm so powerful that I, that I don't even need to do anything. I'll just, I'll just cause you to destroy yourself. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 4, it's not 14, but 4, I think, of Zechariah. No, it is chapter 14, that's right. He describes it in this way. It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. God's going to defeat the kingdoms, and he's going to use them to destroy themselves. This is the promise, and we see here in our text, this is the promise of the coming Messiah. This is the conquering lion, the conquering king. This is the promise that we still look forward to in the future happening one day. The Messiah is going to come, and He's going to set up a kingdom, and it will last forever, and He's going to rule and reign in that kingdom. That's great. That's wonderful. Even today we say amen to that. But look around. Yours are rubbable now. Look around. Is that what you see? Do you see a mighty kingdom? Do you see the Messiah anywhere around? Or do you see destruction? Do you see discouragement? The truth is that though it may have looked extremely unlikely and even impossible at the moment. God's message was, don't worry, Zerubbabel. Don't worry. I have not forgotten my promise. And to you as the leader of this, my people, I have not forgotten the promise to my people. And as their leader, I have not forgotten my promise to you. And in leadership, as, as you and I take on areas of leadership that God has given to us, God gives us promises. And His encouragement for us is, don't worry, I haven't forgotten my promise. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm still on the throne. I am still king. And I will reward my faithful servants. The last I will is found in verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to overthrow kingdoms. I'm going to shake heaven and earth. I'm going to overthrow the strength of those kingdoms. And I'm going to take you. I'm going to do something with you. So this is not only God promising some things about what he would do but also God's promise and those that he would use. This is who I will use. Now, stay with me here because this can get a little bit confusing, but I think that there is a very significant and special message that's here. You'll notice at the beginning of verse 23, it says, in that day. Well, What day are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the day that's referenced in verse 22, the, the day of the Lord. We're talking about 
the, the overthrow of kingdoms. We're talking about uh, the Messiah setting up his earthly kingdom. We're talking about a day yet future. It hasn't happened yet. And as where we sit, our perspective of history, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't taken place. So part of the promise is in that day. But then also part of the promise is I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, which Zerubbabel, he lived in his day, today, the present. So there's something here with this future promise and this present day encouragement. There's two different messages in two different times, but yet somehow linked together by one individual, this man Zerubbabel. What's going on here? Well, first of all, let's take a look at the, the present encouragement. You notice how God speaks to Zerubbabel. First of all, he says in verse 23, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant. Zerubbabel, you are my servant. You. And you notice he says, he he gives his lineage. You, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. You. No no one else. I'm, I'm talking to you specifically. You are my servant. The place where you are laboring is significant to me. The task that you've been given to fulfill is important to me. And we know from the previous chapter and, and of course, the rest of history that the task that he would perform, that he would fulfill the, 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 the reconstruction of this temple, though Herod would try to claim in his renovation, he would try to call it Herod's temple. It was really that the Jew, and the Jews viewed it as the second temple. This was the temple that, that Zerubbabel and, and the people built. That temple would be the one that the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, would walk the halls would teach, he would preach, he would overthrow the, the money changers, he would, he would chase out those who were defiling the temple. God would inhabit that very building Amen. that, Zachari- or that uh, Zerubbabel was tasked with fulfilling. And notice how God, in this, this area of being his servant, how he addresses Zerubbabel. Uh, turn just a few pages forward to the book of Zechariah and look in chapter 4. Again, these two books written at pretty much the same time, even with the same goal of encouraging the people to rebuild God's house. Notice the language. I wanted to turn here because this is how God's viewing his leader, how God is encouraging his man in leadership. Look there in verse, uh, verse number six. And we could, I'd love to take apart this whole chapter. We don't have time tonight because there's a vision that God gives to Zechariah, but We're going to skip right to, here's what this vision means. This is what God's trying to say. Verse 6, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm going to empower you, Zechariah. It won't be through physical might, physical strength, but it'll be my Holy Spirit empowering you for this task. Verse 7, who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. In verse 10, for who hath despised the day of small things? 
For they shall rejoice and they shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God has a special promise for his servant. A mountain? Oh, you're just a plain when you stand in front of my servant. Oh, it won't be by his might or his strength. It'll be by my spirit, but you'll be a plain. There will be no obstacle that can stand against Zerubbabel in the task. I will empower him to complete the job. His hands laid the foundation. His hands also will complete the job. And the people will rejoice when they see Zerubbabel with a plummet in his hand. The idea of a plumb line, a, a plumb bob, and he's measuring things, making sure everything is square and straight and true. And the people will rejoice because he is their leader. God says to Zerubbabel, in the, in the presence of his discouragement, even in the presence of his past failure, how he, how, how he had failed to do the job before, God says, you're my servant, and I'm with you. And if you're trying to fulfill a, a responsibility of leadership, if you're trying to, to lead your, your family after Christ, you're trying to, to lead people here in this, this church, this body after the Lord, you're trying to, to be the, the right kind of leader that God wants you to be, God says to you, you be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. I'll empower you for the task. Yeah, it probably doesn't look like you have the strength. You, physically, you might not have the resources to fulfill the job that I've given to you. But I'm going to empower you. And that was the message of encouragement to Zerubbabel. You are my servant. But that's not all he says in verse 20. Go back, going back to our our text in Haggai, sorry, verse 23. Not only are you my servant, Zerubbabel, but you are also my signet. You see that word in verse 23? I will make thee as a signet. You know what a signet is, right? It's a signet often attached to a ring. It was the king's symbol, the king's sign. And whenever he would author messages or uh, make decrees or sign laws, those, those laws, those, those uh, messages, the, the paperwork would be rolled up and sealed with a little bit of hot wax. And as that wax would begin to uh, solidify, the king would take his seal and imprint that seal in that wax. And you knew the king himself was the one who sent this message. This signet represented the king's Authority. You may remember back when we were studying the book of Esther and when Haman wanted to do, wanted to kill the Jews. And what King Ahasuerus did is he took the signet off of his hand and he gave it to Haman, basically saying, you have the authority to do whatever you want. God says, Zerubbabel, I'm making you my signet. You bear my authority. You are doing my bidding. You're working for me, and you have my authority behind what you're trying to accomplish. Moms and dads, you are leading your family and, and after the Lord and trying to uh, 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 train your children and, and lead them in the proper direction. If you're trying to, to be faithful in that area of leadership, God says to you, you bear my authority. I'm with you. You're doing my bidding. God's with you. He's with you in that task. Be encouraged. But you know that signet also, not only did it represent authority, but it also represented a, a closeness because there were some 
kings and, and many who would take that signet ring and they might not have worn it on their hand, but many would put it on a chain, on a necklace, and they would put it around their neck. And that signet, that sign, would be close to their heart. This is the, the imagery in the book of Song of Solomon, where in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6, it says that this is the, um, the woman to Solomon, the one that he cared about, the one that cared about him. She says, set me as a seal. Now, that word seal is the same exact Hebrew word for the word signet. So it's the same, same idea, same thing. Set me as a, a signet, a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. The signet represented closeness. And God was saying to his leader, you are close to my heart. In trying to fulfill my task for you and trying to be faithful and trying to endeavor to, uh, to accomplish something for me, you are important to me. You are close to me. You are my chosen one, my signet, my servant. We won't take the time to do this, but if you go to um, Zechariah chapter 4, Zerubbabel and Joshua are both referred to as the two anointed ones, the chosen ones that stand before the Lord of the earth. And God says that at the end of verse 23 in our text, He tells Zerubbabel, I have chosen you. In your position of authority, God has chosen you. He didn't pick someone else. He chose you. That's your position. That's your place. You are anointed by God to fulfill that area of responsibility. You're my chosen one. And so there was present encouragement to Zerubbabel. You're my servant. You're my signet. You're my chosen one. But there's also a future promise in this. And that is in that phrase, in that day. There's more to this than just the present day. There's something that's coming in the future. Through a future descendant, Zerubbabel, who would be known as my servant. Have you ever heard that phrase before, my servant? If you read the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, that phrase, my servant, is the very phrase that Isaiah used to, he uses to describe the Messiah himself. My servant. My signet. The representative of God himself. And of course, we know Jesus Christ to be representing God's authority. He's the express image of God's person, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. He is, if you've seen Him, you have seen the Father. He represents God's authority. And He represents closeness to the Father as the only begotten. The only begotten Son. My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Representing closeness to the Father. And of course, He is the, cho- the chosen one. The anointed one. The very meaning of the word Messiah the chosen one. And here he's pictured as the redeeming lamb, the one who would come. But if you're Zerubbabel and you're hearing this, you've got to be thinking, but how, how can this be? How, how can I be associated with this Messiah that would come? 
doesn't my family bear the curse of the prophet Jeremiah? Well, here's something that's very interesting. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 1 real quickly? Got just a few more verses and we'll be done. But you need to see this. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we find the kingly lineage of Joseph. Joseph going all the way back to the time of Abraham and giving the the genealogy, giving the, the, the descendants of Abraham all the way up to Joseph, and this was the the kingly line. You'll notice some king's names if you read this whole thing. We're not going to do that for time's sake tonight, but verse number 12, I want you to notice. It says, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias, that's Jehoiachin, we talked about him, begat Salatiel, that's Shealtiel, that's Zerubbabel's father, and, and Salatiel begat Zerubbabel. And then it continues on with the genealogy. This is, you say, well, yeah, that's the kingly line. We already knew that. He's a descendant of Josiah. You see his name there. And, and Ammon, Manasseh, and, and Hezekiah, and, and Asa, and Rehoboam, Solomon, David. We, we knew all that before. But I want you to notice something else. So turn from here, from the book of Matthew, go to the book of Luke, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is a different genealogy of the Messiah. This genealogy is the Davidic line of Mary, not through David's son Solomon, but specifically through David's son Nathan. And it goes all the way back to God himself. Look there in Luke chapter 3. And you will notice, and I forgot to write down the verse, which was... uh, Uh, Oversight. You'll notice toward the end of the chapter, the genealogy. And if you'll notice towards the, let's see here, it's not 25. Oh, there, verse 27. You'll notice a name right in the middle of verse 27. It is Zerubbabel, which is the son of Salatiel, which was the son of Miri. So what is the significance of this? Well, after King David, there are only two people that appear in both lines. So after King David, there's only two people that appear in both the kingly line of Joseph and the Davidic line also of Mary. There's only two people. You know who those two people are? One is Jesus, obviously. The second one is Zerubbabel. In other words, God would bypass the curse of Zerubbabel's grandfather Jehoiachin, and he would use Zerubbabel to do it. Fascinating. Now, he had no idea that this is what was going on. He had no idea that God was currently in the process of breaking those two lines so that, yes, he would fulfill his judgment on Jehoiachin and what what he said and, and that punishment for his sin, but God would also bring forth a Messiah. And both of those lines come in and out of Zerubbabel himself. He had no idea that this is what God was doing. And you know, in our service for God and our leadership for God, oftentimes we have no idea in in our limited perspective, in our limited view, we have no idea what God is doing in and through us. And God doesn't tell us 
All he says is, be faithful. You're my chosen one. You're my servant. You're my signet. Be faithful where I put you. Leave the results up to me. And, oh, by the way, I'm up to something. I'm doing something. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for Zerubbabel to get to heaven and to see, oh, uh, you want to know what I was doing? Here, let me show you. Because of your faithfulness. Because of your leadership. You see, when we seek to serve the Lord, when we seek to obey God, we become part of His master plan. When we seek to fulfill our responsibility, when we seek to be a leader in the position where He's put us to lead, God's up to something and we become part of His master plan. This was the encouragement for Zerubbabel. Consider my promise. You will reap in due season if you faint not. I will reward you. You'll be part of my plan and and you will be amazed at what I was up to and what I was trying to do. Though your place of service might be thankless, though it may seem insignificant, though it may be full of discouragements, if you're faithful in your service for God, He can accomplish something that is beyond your imagination. That's what He wants to do, and that's what He will do. So tonight, may we be faithful. Be faithful in what area, whatever area of leadership God has given you. Be faithful because you have no idea your place in God's master plan. And throughout eternity, if you're faithful in that place where God has put you, you'll be able to rejoice. It won't be, it won't be look at me, look at all that I did, but it will be look at what God did through me. I mean, I, I can't even, I, I had no concept. I had no idea that this is what God was doing. But he did it. He is great. He's awesome. I'm so glad I was faithful in the place where he put me. So wherever God has placed you, mom, dad, leader at, at work in your job, leader here at church, deacon, Sunday school teacher, just faithful servant, Can you be faithful tonight? Can you not quit? Can you you not succumb to the discouragement? Yes, they're they're, they're, they're there. It's not easy. It's hard work. I mean, this, this task of leadership was a monumental task for Zerubbabel to take on. But if we're faithful, we become part of God's master plan. We'll ever be amazed at what He does through us. We won't regret it for all of eternity. Let's be encouraged tonight to be faithful in the area of leadership that God has given to us.